Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hey everybody, welcome back. A recent LifeWay research study found that almost 7 of 10 American pastors believes that there's a growing sense of fear among those in their churches regarding the future of our nation and of the world, and that the majority of those pastors agree to sharing that fear. So I want to talk about that, Jim, about what is contributing to the present state of fear, but I also want to just dig more broadly into the realm of eschatology to discuss what does the Bible actually say about the end times? So let's start with the now, though. Okay, so seven of ten. We're going to do that in like a half hour. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'll be concise. I'm glad you're answering all the questions for this one. Um, But yeah, so let's start with with, with today. So seven of ten seems uncommonly high. But I guess my question is, is that uncommon? Like, have, have Americans always felt a sense of fear regarding their future? Or is there something that's unique about our cultural timestamp that contributes to that high percentage? Oh, I, I think both. I mean, I, I think that there has always been fear of the future or anxiety about the days to come. Every generation feels like the world has changed dramatically on their watch and they, you know, they fear about the days to come. Um, but I think the fear that is being felt now is palpable. Uh, the LifeWay study you mentioned, and we'll link to it in the show notes, uh, highlighted fear about our nation and the world, as well as the future of the Christian faith. Um, I don't know if there's been that kind of anxiety since, say, World War I or World War II, uh, some of those type of times when everything was thrown into chaos. And I really don't blame people. I mean, in terms of the world, we see wars and rumors of wars, and such as Russia invading Ukraine. You've got global warming and environmental catastrophes from wildfires to flooding to hurricanes to drought. You have widespread epidemics and viral outbreaks. You've got ideological divides tearing us apart. And then you have Christianity itself in decline with the rise of the nuns, the dechurching of America, and uh, the reality of a post Christian culture. Uh, throw in the cultural issues that on top of all that create anxiety, such as gay marriage and transgender issues. And yeah, you really do see the nature of the concerns. Hmm. Well, let's talk about the end times. And I understand that there is a spectrum of views regarding how the end times might unfold. We can talk about that in a moment. But first, can you highlight any points of end times doctrine that have generally been agreed upon across time and traditions? Like, is there anything that the Bible tells us that we can know for sure? Oh, yeah, a lot. I mean, and and, and a lot there's Christian uh, full agreement on, too. I mean, let me just give a handful, not, not be exhaustive, but just be um, uh, give uh, be indicative. Uh, first, that we uh, everybody agrees we're now in the end times. There's no doubt about that. Uh, technically, we have been living in the end times ever since the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the end times began. A lot of people forget that. Uh, that was the fulfillment of all of redemptive history, what God had been working towards since creation and the fall of Adam and Eve. Uh, to the establishment of the people of Israel, to the exodus to the promised land, to God sending judges and kings and prophets, all leading up to Jesus. 
and throughout it all, God calling people to himself uh, until his direct intervention through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Ever since then, from Jesus until now, that has been the end times because there's only one other thing left to happen. And those are, you know, the final events of the end times, the end of the end times almost, you could say. Second, there's agreement on the signs of the end of the end times. Uh, Jesus gave them with great specificity, so much so that the passage that they're found in Matthew 24 is called the little apocalypse, with obviously the big apocalypse being Revelation. Um, but he gave at least eight signs to look for that um, are pretty unambiguous. Uh, first, that there's going to be false prophets and people who claim to be Christ or some type of Messiah leader. Individuals will rise and teach what isn't true and will try to get people to follow them. And, but they won't really be of God. Second, there will be wars and threats of wars. Uh, in other words, it'll be an age of uh, sociopolitical anxiety uh, and fear of world conflict, and there will be conflicts between nations. Uh, third, he said there will be an increase in the number of natural disasters, floods and hurricanes and tornadoes and droughts and earthquakes. Uh, fourth, Christians will be persecuted for their faith. They will be ridiculed. They'll be discriminated against. Uh, fifth, a lot of people will turn away from their faith. They will renounce Jesus and they will say they no longer believe in him. Uh, sixth, there will be internal division and discord among Christians. Christians will turn on each other. Uh, seventh, immorality uh, and insensitivity toward immorality will reign throughout the land. We will engage in things that embarrass God. And when we do it or when we see it, we won't even blush. And the final sign is that before it all comes to an end, the good news of Jesus will be proclaimed to everyone in the world. Now, I know the seven of those eight feel like today's news cycle. Yeah. But uh, there have been other eras that have felt that, like it was the day's news cycle, too. But people agree that is those are the signs that Jesus said to look for when the end of the end is near. Another area of agreement are the events that follow those signs. Uh Things like a tribulation, a second coming, a rapture, millennium, a judgment resulting in heaven or hell. You find all those terms in the Bible. Those aren't made up. It's agreed that those are, you know, there. Um, there are disagreements surrounding the details of those events, the timing of those events, um, but not them happening in one form or another. And I think the biggest thing that everybody agrees on is that when all is said and done, Jesus wins. Hmm. Well, if we have that many, that, so many points of agreement, then why is the field of eschatology, and that's if that's a new term, that's just the study of the end times. Why does it comprise such a wide spectrum, a wide range of beliefs? Like maybe you could you could direct us to where where does it talk about the end times in the Bible, and why isn't it clearer? Yeah, I guess I'll just end the question there. Few reasons. First, much of what is told to us about the end times comes through, and this gets to your question about where do we get this material, mm -hmm. comes through the visions and dreams of people like Ezekiel and Daniel in the Old Testament and the Apostle John in the New Testament, specifically the book of Revelation. They struggled, and also Daniel. You see it in, uh, I mentioned Daniel. Um, and they struggled to put into words what they witnessed. They really did, and understandably so. I mean... I mean, we know the broad contours, but but even they seemed a bit confused about what they were told or what was revealed to them or how best to put it into language. And, and John 
confessed to that as much. Second, I think uh, we want specificity. We want step-by-step, point-by-point details, and we have visions. (laughs) We've got, you know, swords coming out of mouths and all this kind of stuff. And and it's like, wait a minute. It's similar to what I often tell people about um, basic interpretive skills. And I always use Genesis as kind of an example. at At the risk of oversimplification, there are, and you've heard me talk about this, there's three primary ways of looking at reality, at least among those of us who reside in the West. Uh, each is is important to understand. Uh, there's the Greek way of looking at things, which is largely descriptive and explanatory. Uh, the Greek way of looking at the world has an emphasis on 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 rationality. Um, Aristotle, for example, famously felt that once you uh, defined something, you had really exhausted its essence. You were kind of done. Uh, when you approach something with Greek questions, you tend to be searching for shape and substance and definition. So you might approach something like water and say, well, what is water and what does it look like and what does it feel like? And second way of looking at reality is uh, can be called the Latin way, uh, which is primarily concerned with method. Uh, a Latin question would ask, how does this work? And so when applied to theology, a Latin question would be, how is one saved? You know, method. Um, Greek and Latin questions form the currency of much of our thinking, including how we approach and read the Bible. The problem is you can't always ask Greek or Latin questions of the world, certainly not of the Bible, because it's not a Greek or Latin book. The New Testament might have been written in Koine Greek, uh, but except for aspects of the Apostle John's strategy in the fourth gospel, it is not written from a Greek philosophical orientation. Uh, Which brings us to the third way of approaching reality, which is the Hebrew way. The Hebrew mind would be concerned with what a thing is for and and whether or not it works. You know, very utilitarian. Uh, Matters of utility and value were paramount, Uh, which is why you can read. um, And a lot of people, when when I when I remind them of this, they think a minute and they go, well, that's right. You know, and for example, you can read all four Gospels, all four biographical accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus and never once find a physical description of what he looked like Uh, to the Hebrew mind. It just wasn't important. It literally never entered their minds to have done that. So when the Old Testament says an angel, for example, appeared, the question was not, what did the angel look like? It was, well, what does he want us to do? Hmm. One of the great challenges for many readers of the Bible is that we often come to its pages with Greek and Latin questions, and we're wanting Greek and Latin answers. And the Bible doesn't give us that because it's not a Greek or a Latin book. It's a Hebrew book. And framed uh, from a Hebrew mindset. So when we study something like Genesis, we want to know how God created the world. We we have scientific questions, uh, and we're never told how. The narrative simply says God did it and that it was good. I think we can do the same thing when we approach the sections of the Bible dealing with eschatology. Uh, We bring Greek and Latin questions to a Hebrew text and we force Greek and Latin answers out of it and sometimes create all kinds of problems and such as wanting a chronology and a timeline. And when, when, when we're not maybe given that and maybe we're forcing that out of the text when it's really not there or, or wanting every mention of time or something of numerical value to be literal when it might be symbolic or it might be figurative. Uh, such as seven years, a thousand years, uh, 72 months and so on. Uh, but sometimes it is meant to be literal, you know? Uh, so it means 
it leads to a lot of conjecture and it leads to a you know, fair amount of debate, uh, which is why I would say we need a lot more humility with these things. Hmm. I wanted to tackle one point of disagreement that I've always thought was interesting. So some will look at the Bible and they conclude that the world is on a downward trajectory until Jesus finally comes to save the day. So, you know, contrary to kind of modern humanist thinking, like it's not going to get any better. It's just going to continue to get worse. And then Jesus is going to kind of ride in like a white on Irish, a, a, a knight on, on a horse, right? And like kind of save the day. But others think that, like, no, 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 the world is gradually improving because the gospel is being spread more widely. And so Jesus' coming is just going to be like icing on the cake. What do you think the Bible points to? Oh, that'll it'll get worse. Okay. <laughs> um, but let me back up, having said that, and, yeah. and walk through it a bit. Um, it all begins with the second coming of Christ. Uh but simultaneous with that second coming is something known as the first resurrection as well as the rapture. Uh, the first resurrection occurs when Jesus uh, comes again. At the second coming of Christ, all who died as followers of Christ will be resurrected as part of that second coming. Then those who are alive at the time who are also followers of Christ will be raptured or caught up to be with Jesus. At that point, they too will receive their resurrection bodies. So when Jesus comes, everyone in relationship with him, those who had died and those still alive, will be gathered to him. That is the group Jesus will have when he then proceeds to Armageddon. Now, this view that I've just described is known as the post-tribulation view, meaning that the rapture happens post or after the tribulation. There are two other views, uh, main views. Uh, one is known as the pre-tribulation which understands view, which understands the rapture to happen pre or before the tribulation, thus protecting Christians from going through it. And then the mid-tribulation view sees the rapture coming in the middle of the tribulation, about midway, the three and a half year mark, uh, before the worst of it, which scripture seems to point to be the final 42 months. So whether you're pre, post, or mid-tribulational view depends on when you think the rapture is going to happen. Mm. That's It's all about the rapture. The problem with both a pre-trib and a mid-trib view is that you just don't find it in a clear reading of what scripture has to say, I would say. There's always a sense that the rapture comes with the second coming. And if someone wants to argue this and say, no, 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 I'm absolutely sure that it's pre-trib and that Christians aren't going to have to go through it. My response is always, I so hope you're right. I so want you to win this argument. I so want you to convince me. You have no idea how much I hope I lose this argument. Um, yet, um, uh, when you read the Bible throughout, for example, the book of Revelation, the clear teaching over and over and over again is that Christians need to be patient in the face of persecution during the end times. If you want a theme, Christians persevere through the absolute hell break of the end times. Hmm. If those Christians who are alive at the time are raptured beforehand, that repeated challenge over and over again about persevering through to the end makes no sense. Hmm. And until, and another thing too, church history is, is informative here. Until the last hundred or so years or so, 100, 125 years, the view of the church throughout history was a slam dunk. It was just uniformly post-trip, just uniformly. 
uh, meaning the rapture comes with the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. That was the mainstream view for like first 1800 years or so of the life of the church. Well, um, which is informative. Mm -hmm. So uh, then, of course, you know, if you keep playing out the end times, you know, Satan is bound and imprisoned in the bottomless pit or the abyss. The abyss was often a, a reference to the subterranean abode of the demonic hordes, the prison, if you will, of evil spirits. Satan is bound for a thousand years, after which he'll be released for a second shot at things, um, which we don't have time to get into. It's one of the more obscure aspects of the end times, but it's there. Uh, during that time, those who had been martyrs uh, now resurrected reign with Christ, along with uh, all of the other believers, uh, all who are part of the first resurrection. Uh, that thousand year period is known as a millennium, uh, which is a word meaning 1000 years. There's a lot of debate and conjecture about the millennium, uh, mainly in relation to where the second coming of Jesus stands in relation to it. There are three views again, uh, premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial. Uh, the premillennial view um, sees the second coming of Jesus happening uh, pre or before the start of the millennium. In fact, it's the second coming that begins it. The amillennial view, just an A in front of it, meaning not, um, holds that there won't be a visible earthly millennial reign of Christ. The millennial rule, whatever that is, is happening now in heaven. The post-millennial view uh, views the second coming of Christ coming post or after the millennium. The idea is that the spreading of the Christian faith uh, and and message will, will transform the world in the millennial age where um, wars will cease and peace will prevail, and then Christ will return at the end of that. I hold to a premillennial view. Uh, it's where most biblical scholars are, quite frankly, as it seems to be the clearest reading of what Revelation and other sections of Scripture tell us. And as for whether this is a literal thousand years or not, most actually see it as symbolic, but it, it doesn't matter. A lot of this stuff, you know, a lot of these these big things, it doesn't matter, you know. Um, the Because, uh, you know, again, I come back, you know, Jesus wins. So, you know, we can all kind of take a sigh of relief. Um, it's not anything to disfellowship it over. But it could be a literal thousand years, but it's more likely that it's um, symbolic for a designated period of time that will have a beginning and will have an end. Hmm. Well, then there's the great judgment. That sounds terrifying, but it is an experience the same by everybody who goes through it. So can you talk about that now? Two books will be opened. Uh, the first contains our choices and our actions and our deeds and our decisions, what we have done, what we have not done. That is the book of accountability. And none of us have anything in the pages of that book that would warrant our salvation. It only makes clear our guilt. But then there is another book based not on deeds, but grace, the book of life. And no matter what is in the book of deeds, the book of life is what matters. Did we come to Jesus for grace, forgiveness, restoration, and fellowship and relationship? If so, the book of life trumps everything. Because it's as if everything about Jesus, that becomes our story. Mm -hmm. That becomes what's on our pages. But if we're not in the book of life, if all there is for us is the book of deeds, then comes the second death, um, the lake of fire. Uh, and, um, and, you know, going, just even saying what I just said, it reminds me of a story I heard once about a missionary who was teaching. He was asked what Jesus will say when he returns to earth. 
And, and when he was asked that, he thought it was a really odd thing to be asked. And then he remembered that the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he'll return with a loud shout. And so the student was basically asking, what's he going to shout? And the missionary thought a moment, and then he just kind of had an inspired answer. He just said, I think he's going to shout enough. Hmm. Enough suffering, enough starvation, enough terror, enough death, enough indignity, enough lives, you know, trapped in hopelessness, enough sickness and disease. At the end, when he returns, Christ will shout enough. But in light of what we're talking about with judgment, you know, he'll also shout enough time. Uh, I heard someone say that for Christians, life on earth is as bad as it gets. It will only get better. But for the person who is not a Christian, this life is as good as it gets. It's only going to get worse. I, I think this conversation reminds us how important it is to take everything Jesus said so seriously and to realize that whether this is the end of time or not, there, the, you know, the end of the end of time, there will be a reckoning. And that's what the great judgment is. It's a reckoning. Mm. And of all the things that Christ said enough to, when he says enough time, that's going to be the call that pierces all of us for joy or utter despair. There will be no middle ground. The good news is that now, today, I mean, there's still time for, before the end, to make our life choice, uh, to avoid the, the second death, uh, to have your name written in the book of life. Everything about the book of Revelation really is meant to do one of two things. Um, if you really want to get at, so like, why were we given all this information? Why, why, you know, it wasn't just to have theological, biblical debates and fuss and fight and get into camps. If you are a Christ follower, we were given that information because it was meant to bring hope and peace as we look to not only the days ahead, but all matters of life and death uh, to gain an eternal perspective. Mm. You know, as, as Paul says, grieve, but just don't grieve as people without hope. Um, uh, to know that life is not all that there is, that real living hasn't even, as C.S. Lewis says, this life is just shadows. Real living hasn't even begun yet. Uh, or as Jesus himself said, I'm telling you all this because I don't want your hearts to be troubled. You know, I'm 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 gonna I'm going to prepare a place for you, and and then uh, then we'll always be together. I mean, that was his great comfort. That was why he shared all that stuff. But Revelation is also meant to be a wake up call to those who are not in a relationship with God through Christ. <clears throat> Knowing that Jesus is coming again should cause you to wake up and live the way you'd want to if you knew he was coming. And that was the message of, for example, the the bridesmaids and other stories that Jesus told about being ready and expectational. This isn't a game. It's not some fairy tale. The Bible says that what we are talking about when it comes to the events at the end of time, this is fact. This is going to happen. Um, it's truth. It's reality. It's how it's going to be. So there needs to be an urgency to our lives and to the decisions we make and an urgency to evangelism. Um, while this life is not the end, it determines the end. Uh, it seals our eternity. There are no second chances. You may say you have time, but there will come a time when Jesus will shout enough. <clears throat> it could be at a second coming or it could be just at the moment of our death. But apart from the second coming, every single one of us will, will, will die. I, I'll never forget reading a fictional story uh, of a strategy session that's always stuck with me. Um, it's fictional, but of a strategy session among some demons about what they could do to stop people who were close to making a decision to becoming Christians. And one demon stood up and said, I know, I know, we can tell them there's no life after death. 
in which Satan, who was supervising the meeting, said, no, that won't work. Man is not entirely ignorant. Even atheists admit that there is an eternal soul, or at least some of them do, and feel that this life does not end at all. Another demon stood up and said, okay, I've got it. Let's say there is no God. Or if there ever was, he's not a personal God. He's just a force or an energy field. Satan said, that won't probably work either. Maybe a few will buy into that, but most humans intuitively know that there's a personal God. I mean, you've read the polls. Look at how many believe it. Another said, well, let's show them all the hypocrites. Let's show them all the things that have been done that, you know, shames the name of Jesus and shows, you know, the opposite of what he would say live. And Satan said, well, that might work for some of them, but most will figure out that really has little to do with Jesus himself. Finally, a demon stood up with a grin and said, you've all missed the most effective strategy we have. And they all said, what? what, what? And he said, tell them there is no hurry. Mm. And Satan smiled because he knew it would work. But it's a lie. There is a hurry. And I think that's what the great judgment points to more than anything. Mm. I'm going to circle back to where we started with the fear that Americans are experiencing about the future of our country and the world. Because... I feel that tension there based on what we've talked about. I mean, there's the hope that you just described, but there's also a fear that it's not going to get any better. I mean, there, there could be really difficult times ahead. So is fear, is, is this a healthy fear that Christians should be experiencing? Or I don't know, how, how, how do you see that dynamic of, of the place of fear in the Christian's life as we consider the future? Well, I don't think it should be a part of the Christian's life, not fear. Uh, the Bible tells followers of Jesus uh, to expect trials, to expect sufferings, but the antidote to that is not fear. Uh, it's interesting. In the Bible, the actual prescription is to meet it with rejoicing and faithfulness, to have a view of life that is so eternal uh, and not temporal, with a view that is so turned toward heaven, not earth, that you you look at it that way. Um, you know, <laughs> I remember... Oh my goodness, my my youngest daughter Rachel um uh was on one of her first roller coaster rides. She was nervous and scared and she but she wanted to go she was going to do it. And so uh we went together and the whole time she was sit, kept saying if I die, I go to heaven. If I die, I go to heaven. If I die, I go to heaven. <laughs> over <laughs> and over. But you know that that's that's kind of that's kind of the the way you look, hey, what's the worst that could happen? I die and I go to heaven. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, If your focus is on this life only, you'll find it very difficult to get through your this life only stuff. Uh, Jesus told us over and over again to take our eyes off of this world and focus them on eternity, on the life to come. And one of the big reasons is because that's when most of the pain and anguish and injustice of this life will finally be resolved. We really do have such a worldly view. We, we look at the pain and the anguish and somehow as if, it does, if it doesn't get resolved in this life, God somehow let us down or somehow this, this all, you know, but the Bible makes it very clear that the great resolution to pain and suffering and anguish was one on the cross, but will be effectively realized at the end when we are with him in heaven. That's the great hope. That's the great joy. That's, and we want to, we want to say, no, it's got to be heaven on earth. No, it's, it's heaven after this life. The Bible is very clear about the life to come for those in Christ. And to put all of our hope there. In Revelation, we're told that's when he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's when there'll be no more death and no more mourning or crying or pain. Uh, you know, that that's that's when we experience that. And we look forward to that. And the time in between then and now is to be met with faithfulness to him. 
Um, so when will the tears be wiped away for good? Not in this life, but in the life to come. And when you study those who have, who have endured horrific things for years or even a lifetime, and you see that this really permeates their thinking, this permeates their theology, this permeates their faith. This is, this is how they think and feel. I, I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I've always been very moved and challenged by the faith and the depth of faith, the depth of thinking uh, that is often, that is found in what's often called the great African-American spirituals that were written and sung from the crucible of slavery. And, um, and I remember when I was in my PhD, I, t- I had a, was able to, one of the things I did at Vanderbilt, my, when I had my, my advanced work at Vanderbilt, um, I, I spent an entire, I had a whole thing on, on um, uh, African-American evangelicalism, black evangelicalism. It was just fascinating for me and so challenging, the depth of faith. But I mean, just the, the, but the music was all about this forward thinking, heaven bound. I'm, 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 a, I'm enslaved here but I'm not in chains, you know, I'm, I'm, I, everything. And so you have songs like sometimes I feel like a motherless child or, or um, nobody knows the trouble I've seen or steal away or swing low, sweet chariot. The lyrics were filled with this, with this patience that waited for liberation, a liberation that they, none of them felt would come in their lifetime uh, in anyone's lifetime, probably. And it was always about waiting for the Lord to return. Uh, um, and uh, or when they would return to him, uh, which allowed them to live with this strength and this dignity and this uh, perseverance that was just not of this world. Um, they knew that a day was coming when wrongs would be righted, when justice would flow down like a river. Mm-hmm. Um, and and a lot of people miss that that's what these songs were about. Like the most famous probably was Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. And, you know, when it said Swing Low, sweet chariot coming for to carry me home. I'm looking forward to that when I'm carried home, mm-hmm. you know, and I looked over Jordan and what did I see, you know, coming to carry me home, a band of angels uh, coming after me, coming to carry me home. Mm-hmm. And that, that got him through that day and the next day and the next day, that was the hope. Mm-hmm. And it's the hope for all of us, no matter how much anxiety, may come uh that's what we're looking toward Hmm. i feel like there's so much here i mean you barely scratched the surface on a very large topic and yet there's already just in what you've talked about so much to think about i mean considering you know what we might do to really change that fear factor within our churches or or communities you know what aspects of eschatology do we need to draw attention to what what hope can we draw from church tradition or from you know the from from the pages of the bible you know from how we might well let's just put it this yeah let me I mean just just to kind of you know to be clear um the more we make this life everything the more we'll be riddled with fear and anxiety. Yeah. The more we realize that real living hasn't begun yet and that that's really, I mean, that eternity is real and that's where, you know, then then the less anxiety we'll have. I mean, what's the worst you can do to me? Kill me? Mm-hmm. You know, I die, I go, I go to be with Jesus. I mean, that that that's the worst? That's supposed to plague my life with fear and anxiety when, when you know, I just get to go home mm-hmm. and be free of all this? 
Oh my goodness. So it's busy, but we don't, we don't think that way. And so we cling to this world and we, and we, we're riddled with fear and anxiety. We, we don't have a mindset of, of hope and, and heaven like the, our, our, the ancients did. Hmm. And, um, and so, and that, that then all of a sudden holding on to this life or the quality of this life or preserving this life or extending this life becomes the ultimate but that's so odd for a Christian to think that way, isn't it? Yeah. No, absolutely. And that's why I think there's just a lot of challenges that come from this episode in terms of just kind of self-reflection of like, what what is holding me back from that kind of hope? Where am I clinging to tightly? And yeah, so this has been very thought-provoking. And again, we just scratched the surface. I feel like we'll pad the show notes with more blogs and series of where you've talked about this. I mean, I feel like if you d- dive in too deep, you're gonna your head will start spinning. But um, I'm thankful that you started with kind of the the headlines of where we can where we do fall and where Christian tradition and the Bible fall um, in terms of points of agreement, and maybe kind of focusing on those. But but yeah, thank you. Um, I wish I could give you a, a teaser for what we're going to talk about next week, but I don't know. So you'll be just as surprised as I'm sure Jim and I will be next week when you tune in again. Thanks for joining us.